0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and occasionally I like to step back in front of the microphone, I have a different role on the network now, and do an interview or two, and today I'm very pleased to say I get to talk to my friend Bruce Berglund about his terrific book, Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. Bruce, as you may know, is a longtime host on the network. So I'm very pleased just to have the chance to get to talk to him. And I'm sure that we'll have an interesting conversation about his book. Bruce, welcome. Hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah,
1: certainly. Uh, so I am originally from Duluth, Minnesota. So if listeners detect a, a northern accent, that's the, the root of that. And i uh, I grew up an anxious child of the Cold War. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I knew that my hometown was a tertiary target if, if the missiles ever flew. And uh, so for that reason, I had this uh, uh, kind of unusual preoccupation with the Soviet Union and the communist bloc. And that ultimately grew into an interest in all things Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, I went off to college uh, as an undergraduate and studied Russian language and Russian literature. And while I was in college, two things happened. Uh, one was the, uh, the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe, which uh, I, I couldn't believe I was watching when it was happening. And, uh, Kind of opened up this this whole new world for me that that I could actually go to this region, uh, and the other thing that happened is I discovered in the wake of the revolutions uh, the writings of Václav Havel, uh, Milan Kundera, other Czech writers, and uh, and and that turned my attention away from Russian history and Russian culture to specifically Czech history and Czech culture, uh, and so then when I went off to graduate school I had originally intended in fact I wrote my master's thesis on an area of Russian history uh, but then I decided that uh, I would be more interested in in pursuing uh, studies in Czech history and and I should add in there that uh, uh, sometime in that mix after i graduated from college and made my my backpacking trip around Europe I paid a visit to uh, to Prague and love the city and of course love the beer and uh and resolved that <laughs> I should go back and and work there and uh so yes I finished my my PhD with a dissertation on on uh Czech history during the Second World War I actually did research on the um the exiles from Czechoslovakia who went to Britain during the uh, during the Second World War. And uh, one thing led to another. I worked for a time at the University of Kansas in the Russian and East European Studies Center. there I taught, uh, did administrative work, research work, uh, and then I ended up at Calvin College in Michigan, where I have been for the last fourteen years teaching history.
0: Wow, that's that's exciting. It's actually exciting. Not many people go from Russia to uh, the Czech lands. I think you may be the only one I've ever heard of. really? I I'm, I'm am I wrong?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess now that I think I'm of wrong. it, no, 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 now that, yeah, now that you bring it up, uh, you know, because it was pretty common and you know this from graduate school. Um, did, so did you do a, a double field? Did you have to do a double field in
0: Russian history and Eastern European history? I, I suppose I did, but it's been so long ago I've forgotten all that. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So we were always, you know, I don't really remember, you know, in this in the seminars and colloquia in, in graduate school, we were always partnered up, the, the small group of East European people in the uh you know, in the larger group of, of Russian folks. So
0: yeah. Yeah, a hardy lot, the Eastern European people, I'll tell you that. Yes. Yes. Um, so let, let me ask you this question. Uh, it's a question I love to ask. Why given the amount of time and effort it must have taken, did you write this book? Oh, good grief. Yes. It did take a lot of time and effort. <laughs>
1: and, uh, and at the start, I, I have to give thanks to my, to my family and to my wife who put uh, a lot of patience uh, I hauled them all over to Prague to spend a year there while I was doing research. And uh, um, yeah, so that was, that was a, a remarkable experience and, uh, for them. And uh, they showed great patience to have their dad just kind of spending whole days at archives write, writing some book. So, but yeah, where did the idea come from? So uh, the book is, is completely different from my dissertation. Uh, the one area of overlap is that it deals with the, the mid-20th century in, in Czech history. And, um, so one thing that, that, uh, kind of sparked my interest in this particular topic was noticing during my times I would spend in Prague in the Czech Republic is, uh, the importance of, uh, religious figures in the, the pantheon of Czech national heroes. So you can go back to Jan Hus, this, uh, uh, early church reformer from, um, the early modern period, you can look at Jan Amos Kamensky, who's uh, also an important uh, church reformer, Jan Zizka, who led the, um, uh, the Hussite armies against the, uh, the Habsburg Catholics. And even when you get into the 20th century, important figures like uh, the first president of Czechoslovakia, Tomáš Masaryk, and the first president of post-communist Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, uh, they would write uh, about a, um, they had a moral vision that was rooted in a notion of, they, they didn't necessarily use the term God, uh, but in the notion of eternity. So you have this, this spiritual consciousness uh, in the statements of, of these two important political leaders. And you also see this in uh, the, other, the work of other Czech cultural figures. And yet at the same time, with all this, the, you know, these important religious reformers in, in the national pantheon, figures like Masaryk and Havel, at the same time, uh, census data and social scientific data shows that the Czechs are among the most secular Nations in the world, if not the most secular, the the rate of or the number of people who profess to be atheists among the Czechs ranges anywhere from forty percent up to sixty percent. And mm. so I was curious about this this contradiction that you have um, these important political and cultural figures who speak in the language of of religion and spirituality, and you have these important figures in the nation's history who are, uh, identified with Christianity and the re, uh, reform in the church. And yet in um, the modern day Czech Republic, uh, you seem to see an absence of um, religious practice, uh, if not religious belief. And so that was the kind of the problem or the key question that uh, I was going to dig into in my, in my research. Uh, the other part of it is, and, and key to this, so, so the title of the book is Castle and Cathedral. And I'm focusing on the work in the book of the Slovene architect Joze Plečnik, uh, who came to Prague or who worked in Prague during the 1920s and 30s. He's responsible for the renovation of Prague Castle um, during the 1920s and 30s to make it a, a proper seat of, of the sitting president. And he also designed an important church in, in one of the upscale districts of, of Prague in the 19, late 1920s and 30s and uh, and his architecture people who've who've been to central europe whether to slovenia or prague and have seen the work of plechnik uh, they know it it's it's just striking strikingly original and it's it's difficult to fit within a, a period of architectural history and uh so what kind of was the was the spark in my research was studying plechnik's architect architecture uh and fitting it within this broader context of of religion and culture in interwar Prague mm-hmm.
0: so just by way of background before we get right into the book yeah we should probably say that Czechoslovakia was a new thing in the period yeah. you're talking about can you yeah. talk about how that uh, impacted the thought of particularly these three people Masaryk Plechnik and then Masaryk's daughter i guess um Masarykova is that her name yeah Masarykova yeah yeah i should yeah. introduce
1: her as well so so yeah. there I, I focus on three characters in in the book and uh, so so Tomas Masaryk who uh, was a philosophy professor. Uh, he was a, something of a journalist, a cultural critic. Uh, he was elected to the Austrian parliament. Um, and then he becomes the—during the First World War, uh, he leads the effort during the war in England and in the United States— uh, to gain the Western allies' support for an independent Czech and Slovak state. And then he returns triumphantly in 1918 after the war to become the first first president of independent Czechoslovakia. Uh, Jozef Plecznik, the architect, uh, as I said, is originally from Slovenia. He was educated and worked at the start of his career in Vienna. And then he comes to Prague. He comes to Prague actually before the war to teach uh, architecture uh, at um, uh, basically the, the vocational school or the industrial art school in in Prague, and then the other person uh, whom I didn't talk about before is is Masaryk's daughter, um, his his oldest child, uh, Alice Masarykova. Uh, uh, Masaryk was married to an American woman, and uh, Alice Masarykova was. Um, She had a university education. She first went to medical school and then then earned her doctorate in history. And as she repeatedly noted, she was always the only woman in her classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the family's American connection, she goes to Chicago in the early 20th century and works at Uh, settlement houses in working class neighborhoods of of Chicago. She she spends some time at Hull House with Jane Addams. She also works at the University of Chicago Settlement House on the south side. And she comes back. This experience is important. She comes back to, to Prague and she wants to do this kind of American social work, social work that's mixed with, um, social scientific methods, but also a healthy dose of the Protestant social gospel, which she seed or which she saw um, manifest in, in the work of, of her American um, partners in, in social work in Chicago. Uh, so these are the three figures. And when Czechoslovakia becomes independent in 1918 uh, with Tomáš Masaryk and his daughter, they have this sense of... Um, they're going to create something new. They have uh, great optimism for the future of the Czech nation, uh, for the future of Central Europe and Prague. Uh, but they also have the sense that um, they're at the dawning of a new era uh, in European political history and European religious history. And they see Czechoslovakia as being at the forefront Of a new kind of democracy, uh, where people will be motivated to serve each other in love and altruism motivated by this, this sense of, um, kind of a religious motivation. Masaryk Masaryk had had different mottos that he would use in in describing uh, this this new form of democracy in Czechoslovakia. One was the motto, Jesus, not Caesar. So so we follow Jesus's example in building our state, not Caesar's example. Uh, And the other motto is that uh, the state must conduct its affairs. uh, The leaders of the state must uh, govern and citizens must act out uh, within the state as he said, under the aspect of eternity. Uh, so the state's leaders and its citizens must always be attentive to uh, an eternal measure for their actions. And that would guide them. Uh, it would guide leaders in setting policy and making laws. It would guide citizens in building the democracy, building this new democracy. And his aim was that Czechoslovakia would provide a model of a moral, spiritual, spiritual, just democracy uh, for the
0: new Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, this is very interesting in the sense that um, other models at the time, particularly the Wilsonian one, were either by intent um, or implication nationalistic. And maybe you could say a little bit about the various kinds of people in, well, all of these Eastern European places, but especially Czechoslovakia, Czechs and Slovaks and Germans and go ahead.
1: Well, Masaryk's vision was not uh, uh, how to say uh, it was. It was quite nationalistic, and and his critics, uh, even critics who respected his ideas, who were appreciative of the work he was doing, recognized that in his vision for Czechoslovakia, he he really framed it in terms of a of a Czech national state, and that. Uh, um, Masaryk had something of a uh, one of his most perceptive critics pointed out that that he didn't always blame Masaryk. He he, he would kind of cast the blame on on Masaryk's, uh, uh officials and his supporters and so forth. Uh, but that Czechoslovakia had had created this idea of an organic nation, uh, the nation as an entity, rather mm-hmm. than uh, what this critic, named, he was a philosopher named Immanuel Radl. Uh, what Radl saw as the core of Masaryk's thinking is that as individuals, as individual citizens, whether Czech, Slovak, German, Hungarian, Polish, within Czechoslovakia, Uh, we would be motivated individually to act morally, to act justly, uh, to serve as, as citizens. And what he saw by the late 1920s is that vision... Um Masaryk's vision of of a of a moral spiritual democracy had been lost. And instead what had been created was it was a Czech national state, uh which was antagonizing other nationalities, in particular, uh in particular the Germans.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of Hans Kohn's distinction between and this is fresh in my mind because I just did an interview with someone who wrote a terrific biography of Hans Kohn between civic nationalism, mm-hmm. which according to Hans Kohn is the Western kind. Yep. And ethnic nationalism, which is the Eastern kind, and I think he even started to associate it with uh, the Israeli state, the is- Israeli state, and with with Jewish nationalism. Yeah, does that fit well? Yeah, yeah, and that in that term of of a
1: civic nationalism, or not civic nationalism, but uh, a civic notion of the state, a humanitarian notion of the state, it it comes in the. Uh, you know, the rhetoric that Masaryk and his supporters use and, and Mosterick, I should add. So his wife was uh, his, his wife was from the United States. She was from Brooklyn. Uh, they met while they were studying in Germany. And, and so, <laughs> so yeah, so she was there studying piano and it's a wonderful romantic story. I won't, I won't go into it, but um, because of this connection, Masaryk always had a, an understanding and an appreciation of what was happening in the United States. Uh, he read early on, he read Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and this became something of his, uh, you know, the the best parts of American democracy that he gained from Tocqueville is what he wanted to do uh, in, in Bohemia and then in, in Czechoslovakia after 1918. Uh, and so a lot of his, the way he describes the state and his aims for the state after 1918 are coming from his understanding of the American Republic, um, picked up from his wife, but also picked up from his reading of Tocqueville and others in particular with religion. He saw, um, in the, in the case of the United States, there needs to be some common Religious understanding that, that um, guides the citizenry in morality, in their sense of service to others, uh, to work on behalf of the common good, to work on behalf of the state. He saw that as being uh, the best part of American democracy, and that's what he wanted to import to Czechoslovakia.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Tocqueville, because after you said he read Democracy in America, the thought that occurred to me was, uh, as everyone should.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Um, Because there's never been a more brilliant book. But, you know, Tocqueville identifies, if I remember correctly, a kind of civic religion in America. He says Americans don't care too much about which one. They just want you to have one. Yep.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And and, um, a... Scholar of of Masaryk um, commented on this already in the early 1960s, so before the famous piece by uh, Bella about uh, civic religion uh, or civil religion, that that Masaryk was engaged in something similar in Czechoslovakia in the 1920s and 30s, that he was trying to create a civil religion um, that would inspire citizens, that would guide uh, the state's leaders, uh, it would provide a some notion of of God shining down over Czechoslovakia and guiding the people toward unity and toward service. Um, but yes, definitely, and you can see that, and that's part of what I'm looking at in, in the book, is how, for instance, with the work of Jozef Plechnik at Prague Castle, this is part of this big project uh, to build a civil religion for Czechoslovakia.
0: How did the... Authorized, I guess I would call them. They were authorized in other places. I don't know about Czechoslovakia. Religions—that uh, is, mm-hmm. uh, your Protestants and your Catholics, your various yep. kinds of Protestants—how how did those folks respond to Masaryk's attempts to create? A civic, I guess we could call it, religion.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, so, so Masaryk had been um, raised in the Catholic Church, and he said throughout his life that when he was a young man, he was, or when he was a boy, uh, he followed his mother's example of, of devotion. He went on pilgrimages. Uh, he went regularly to mass with his mother and so forth. And then when he was a university student, he turns away from the Catholic Church. He doesn't turn away from a uh, a belief or as he would call it uh the conviction that God existed that one could have a relationship with God that that God guided an individual's actions yet he leaves the Catholic Church he does join the uh the reformed church in in Austria uh but but really for the rest of his life he doesn't participate in in um, religious services in, in the life of any church he identifies himself as a protestant but he doesn't belong to any, any protestant denomination
0: or any protestant church uh, I was going to say like, like, like many Americans <laughs> yeah exactly so, um, so he, he leaves the
1: catholic church and he really becomes uh, especially at the turn of the century he's just a fierce, fierce, fierce critic of, of the catholic church And so in 1918, he becomes president, and the leaders of the Catholic Church in uh, the Czech lands and in Slovakia remember that, hey, our new president was this guy who... um, you know, 15 years, 18 years ago, was a heart. He was publishing these just damning criticisms of the church. Uh, he was even brought up on charges in Imperial Austria of of criticizing, of condemning the church. Um, and so they say, what do we, you know, what are we going to do with this new president? What should we expect from him? And uh, right away, Masaryk sends a, a letter to the Archbishop of Olomouc and says, I want to have a Uh, separation of church and state. Uh, Basically, I want to get the Catholics out of education. We're going to have state schools, but I recognize the church's importance for uh, moral education and and so forth. And so this begins a struggle that runs throughout the 1920s into the 1930s between Masaryk wanting to have uh, a separation of church and state uh, to have the Catholic Church engage only in spiritual matters, uh, to have education and other matters wholly under the, basically what he had seen or what, uh, what he knew of, uh, the case in the United States, and the Catholic Church resisting this, uh, given that they had this, this long-standing role in the Austrian Empire, this important role uh, in education. Uh, so, so there's that side is, is his struggle with the Catholic Church. Meanwhile, you do have a small population of Protestants in, uh, in the Czech lands, and they see Masaryk as one of their own. Uh, even though he never goes to church, even though he's not a member of church. So it's kind of like, you know, to bring an analogy, it's kind of like Ronald Reagan. Remember Ronald Reagan? Yeah. You know, that, that you have yeah. Protestants and evangelicals who thought of him as one of ours, even though the guy didn't belong yeah. to a church and didn't go to yeah. church. Uh, and yeah. so so they see Masaryk as someone who's going to kind of help them in rebuilding the Protestant church, which, which they see as the true church of the Czechs going back to this, this history of Jan Hus and Jan Amos Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, And they do, the Protestants do see a a slight increase in membership uh, in the early years of uh, uh, the independent state. Uh, But by, by the early 1930s, Protestant leaders, and I talk about uh, these figures in my books, uh, Protestant theologians, um and and I mentioned earlier this this critic of Mossoric's Emmanuel Rodel, who was a, a Protestant philosopher, they recognize that, well, this isn't turning out like we expected. That that for some reason or another <laughs> you know it's for some reason or another the, the boost we were hoping for with, with Mossorik a a professed Protestant becoming president president uh, has not manifested itself in in uh, increased standing of the of the Protestant church. And this was something that Masaryk himself recognized in the early 1930s where where and and we have the diaries of of one of his, uh, one of his secretaries, and she would record, she actually lived at the the president's country estate, and she would write down uh, his conversations with people who would visit, his conversations with her, with his daughter. And in one of these conversations, he says, I, I can't understand why the Czechs haven't returned to the Protestant church. Uh, and then he goes on to blame the Protestant churches. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So this is the the relationship that he that he has. And I should add that you know he has this sense of a uh, we're going to build a moral, spiritual democracy. He has this motto: Jesus, not Caesar. Uh, but in his his own religious biography, he turned away from the Catholic Church. Uh, he called himself a Protestant, but really didn't see the need to to be part of a church. He saw himself as an example of somebody who had a—and um, he used this term synergy, this synergistic relationship with God. He was someone of firm morals, and because he didn't, he didn't need a church to become that kind of person, so why, why mm-hmm. would other people? Uh, so therefore, mm-hmm. he really saw no role for—certainly not the Catholic Church, but also not the Protestant Churches— in the building of this this spiritual moral uh, republic in Czechoslovakia.
0: Wow, sounds like secular humanism. <laughs> without the secular part yeah no exactly yeah and that's and that's you know
1: his his religious critics even you know even czech protestants who like the guy right who said hey he's one of us once they uh the 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 most perceptive of them so i talk about a theologian in 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 my book a protestant theologian named Josef romadka uh who did teach for a time at uh princeton seminary during the war uh he was in exile uh in the states during the war um and he wrote about Masaryk You know, I admire the guy He, you know, he's, he's got this great idea for the nation For the state, for politics I love everything about it But when you dig into his writings about religion It's, it's really, it's certainly not orthodox Small O Christianity um, mm-hmm. And it's really not Religion, It's, it's, you know, he talks a lot about God, but it's kind of, you know, he said the yeah. nicest thing he said is Masaryk's idea of God is, is Plato's idea of God. Right. Uh-huh. And, and it's, it's the philosopher's idea of God. Uh, when he was being less charitable, he said, it's, it's God made in man's image is, is what yeah. Masaryk is proposing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to spend too much time on Masaryk, although we definitely could because he's one of the most fascinating people of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Plechnik. Yes. Uh, the the philosopher architect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so could you tell us a little bit about – yeah, so we're talking about the Prague Castle in particular. What is that exactly? Yeah. I've never been to Prague. You haven't? No, I know. It's it's a sad oh, thing. You know? I mean, I'm lucky if I get to go to McDonald's these days with the kids and all, so <laughs> Prague is out. <laughs> I'll look up some pictures online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh well so in, in Prague,
1: so for those those folk who've been there, they know that that uh dominating the, the old part of the city up above the Vltava River is is a hill called Hradshani. Uh and on top of the hill is is it doesn't look like a castle in the sense of uh the Tower of London. Uh it's it's a large basically a citadel, it's a complex of, of palaces. Churches. Uh, the Cathedral of Saint Vitus is in the center, uh, which which dominates the whole uh, the whole structure. There are a variety of of large and small courtyards, uh, some small little little lanes and, and alleyways within the castle. So it's more like a more like a citadel. And so this, of course, had been the seat of uh, uh, the the dukes and then the kings of Bohemia back in the uh, back in the Middle Ages. And then uh, there were a couple of of Habsburg. Uh, emperors who did have their court at, at the castle in in Prague, uh, but by the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, Prague Castle has really become uh, run down. Um, it's it's in disrepair. So when Czechoslovakia gains independence and Everyone says this is going to be the seat of government. Um, There were multiple ministries of the new government that were kind of claiming uh, palaces, saying these are going to be our new offices, as well as the president. There was a recognition right away this place is in terrible condition. Uh, it can't function as the the center of government for a, for a 20th century state. Um, we can't even bring guests here. The place is in such disrepair. Uh, <laughs> so, so there was this recognition of, okay, A, we need to fix a place up. Uh, B, we need to have a... Um, we, we need to restore it to its glory. It's, it's an important symbol of the authority of, of the kingdom of Bohemia. Now we want it to be a symbol of, of the authority of, of independent Czechoslovakia. So it's not just a matter of modernizing and, and getting the place functional. Uh, we also need to, to figure out how can, we, um, how can we bring the place to a state where, where it, it represents the legitimacy or the authority of, of the new state. Uh, and so in the early 1920s, uh, various Czech architects kind of, of they work on, on different parts of the castle. So for instance, one Czech architect works on, on Masaryk's offices and so forth. And right away, uh, people within the government, within, within Masaryk's office, uh, and within the guild of Czech architects, realize we need to have a single person do this project rather than having... Uh, a team of people working at cross-purposes. And essentially, everybody agrees the one person should be this teacher of architecture at the industrial arts school, Joza Plechnik, who even though he's he's Slovene, even though he's a foreigner, he had earned the respect of, of Czech architects, uh, members of uh, Maserik's office we're, we're getting word that that this guy is the best guy for the job and so so Masaryk kind of gives him a, 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 a test job uh, to renovate his country palace where he goes on the weekend and Masaryk designs the interior designs, even some furniture and Masaryk is amazed and says, Hey, you get the job. You're doing the whole castle in Prague. You're doing the gardens. You're doing everything around it. The job is the job is yours. And uh, so Plechnik sets to work uh, redoing the courtyard. So for people who've been to Prague uh, you see Plechnik's work right when you come through the, f- the front gates of the castle, uh, there are, um, well, one, the, the, the flat paving stones that cover the, the interior courtyards of, of the castle are Plechnik's work. Prior to that, uh, the, the courtyards had been cobblestoned. Um, but when you come into the, the, the main gates of the castle, there are these two tall wooden uh, flagpoles. Uh, they're like, They're like tall trees, and they taper to a sharp point topped with these these bronze points at the top, and there are these two enormous Czech flags. That's Plechnik's work. Uh, And then when you go inside, you see things like uh, in the interior courtyard right next to St. Vitus Cathedral, uh, there's a tall obelisk that stands in the courtyard. This is is something Plechnik put there. Uh, In the gardens outside the castle, Below the castle walls, there's an enormous granite bowl. Uh, it's like a like a giant bowl of, of uh, you know, holy water or, or for ritual cleansing or something like this. This is this is Plechnik's work. All of the gardens are Plechnik's work. And, and what tourists can't see, but what, really what's amazing are the offices and apartments for the president inside the castle. Uh, and so this is the work that that Plechnik does uh, beginning in the early 1920s um, through the mid 1930s, uh, working on the interior, the exterior of Prague Castle to make it functional as the seat of the president, but also to make it this important symbol of the power of the the new independent republic.
0: hmm. And uh, how does he how does he call on his own? Um, I'm not quite sure what we're calling this. His own religiosity yeah, in doing yeah. this.
1: Yeah. So, Blechnik is a, a Catholic and and quite a devout Catholic. And he has had, uh, really, since the time he was a, a student, he 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 set himself apart as a student. You know, other uh, other students in Vienna in in his studio would comment on the fact that, wow, this guy's kind of you know, he's, he's super rigid in his morals. He has kind of this, this ascetic personality. He's kind of like a monk. Um, and he, he doesn't really fit in with the artistic and cultural trends of the time. So, so from the time he was a student, Plechnik stood out. The odd thing was, is that by, whether by his talent or by his charisma, people who saw him as this religious guy who kind of sticks out were still drawn to him. Um, and including, strangely enough, Masserek. So someone who would criticize the Catholic Church, who was no fan of the Catholic Church, he sees in Plechnik someone is, as he called him, he's a genius. And Plechnik in in doing his his work on the castle and doing his designs, he drew upon an idea that architecture, whether whether you're designing a church, whether you're designing a villa for an industrialist, as he had done in Vienna, whether you're designing a castle for a philosopher president, uh, it, all of it is a, a sacred work. Um, architecture is a sacral art, he said. Uh, he, he said to his students, it's like building a rainbow from earth to the hereafter. Mm. So he understood architecture uh, somewhat in the same way that, that Masaryk and Masaryk's daughter understood politics and understood uh, social welfare work in that the, the immediate is connected to the eternal. And what he sought to do, you know, a good example, uh, is this obelisk in the center courtyard of the castle, uh, which, which suggests a timelessness. Um, And, and this was, this was Plechnik's aim in all of his architectural work. Uh, The the idea of creating an architecture that would be eternal, an architecture that you couldn't pigeonhole to a particular, um, a particular fashion, a particular trend, or a particular period. Uh, So you see in Plechnik's architecture, he draws a lot from, uh, from classical styles, classical elements, uh, but then you see things that are just completely, completely original. And he blends them together in a way that, which would be his genius at work in, in a way that, that fits in a way that really, that really sings. And uh, so, yeah, so this is how his religiosity comes out. And it, and it's not necessarily a, a, uh, it fits well with his Catholic religiosity, but, but it goes beyond it, this notion of architecture as um, creating something eternal.
0: And mm-hmm. uh, you said he designed a cathedral in a Tony neighborhood. What's it look like?
1: Uh, it is. <clears throat> excuse me. When I first saw it, when I was a when I was a, a you know ignorant student in Prague, mainly to, <laughs> to drink beer. Um, when I first saw nothing it, wrong with that. No, no, no. When I first saw it, I thought, wow, that looks like it was something built in the late. 60s or early 70s it looks like uh you know some some uh modernist architect during the communist period had concocted his idea of what what a church should be like but in fact it was built in the the uh late 1920s it opened in the early 1930s and and i i always like to say that plechnik would probably be pleased with the fact that i couldn't uh, you know <laughs> that I was confused about Eight, what period. Yeah, yeah. That I didn't know yeah. when to date his his cathedral to. So yeah, so it's called the uh, uh, the Church of uh, the Church of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and it was built in the Prague neighborhood of Vinohradi which uh, at the time already in the nineteen twenties and thirties was a, um, a a Tony w- well established neighborhood. So a lot of prominent writers um, cultural figures, um, you know, people with wealth were, were living in the villas in, in Vino Rati and, uh, and Vino Rati didn't have a church. So this was a neighborhood that had really, really sprung up since, uh, the early years of the 20th century. And, uh, so the church realized, okay, we need to, we need to put a, a parish. We need to put a church building into this neighborhood to serve the needs of people. And, um, Right away in, I think it was in 1918, uh, right away in 1918, the church building committee calls for a competition of designs and they get proposals from the top, top architects in uh, in Prague um, with this idea of, okay, we're going to design a modern church for our modern capital of our modern new democracy. And none of the designs, Really catch the fire of the the building committee. They're they're all impressive, um, and they're they're all strikingly original. Uh, but the building committee, being composed of Czech architects, they recognize the one guy who can really do this is Plechnik. and they write him letters and say, "Hey, will you consider doing a design for this for this new church?" And uh, so throughout the 1920s, Plechnik comes up with different designs. Uh, many of them are beyond the, the resources uh, of the parish, of the church. And uh, so he has to cut elements out and so forth. And meanwhile, um, the, the church building committee has to overcome the opposition of Czech socialists, Czech um, free thinkers and other secular groups uh, who say, hey, I thought we were building a modern democracy. What are we doing putting a Catholic church in the middle of this important neighborhood in our capital city. And, uh, and it's really, it's, it's difficult to, to, you can't find the smoking gun documents, but we do know that that Mossrick made an intervention to allow this project to, to move forward for the, the, uh, the church to get the necessary permissions from, uh, from the city. And, uh, the church was built. Um, it was open in the early 1930s. And, and the one thing that's striking and one thing that, that I read about, so so many people have written about this church in terms of its design, uh, in terms of where Plechny got his ideas for different elements of the design. Uh, what I did in my book was to look at the church records, I looked at, uh, you know, I found even that the church had a, a monthly newsletter in which you find, you know, the the number of baptisms, the number of funerals, mm-hmm. um, the amount of, of money that was coming in and donations for the church, the amount of money that was coming in. So this is when the, the Depression was beginning, donations that were coming in to support people in the neighborhood during the Depression. Uh, and you also get the number of people who are taking Communion. And the one thing that was striking is that in the building of this church, uh, the number of communicants shoots up, which hmm. completely goes against our conventional notion of yeah. you know 20th century Czech religious history, especially in, in Prague, the modern capital of this, this modern state. Uh, that that you have a nation that's largely secular that's turning away from religion, and in the 1930s, you know, partly because of this new church, you know, perhaps partly because of the the, the troubles of the depression, uh, people were people were drawn to church by the by the tens of thousands uh, after
0: Plechnik's church opens. Mm, um, I don't uh, want to leave the conversation without talking about. Uh, Masarikova. Is yeah. that how you pronounce her name, Masarikova? Masarikova. Yeah, yeah. Um, Masarikova. I didn't know where the uh, you know the accent is. Masarikova. Could you tell us about her, please? She made her way to Chicago. You did mention. I have to say, you mentioned the uh, the settlement movement, and I have a settlement cookbook. Seriously. <laughs> I do. I have a settlement cookbook. Yes, I've used it many times. From which settl- from which settlement house? Then? I don't know. I know it's a Chicago settlement cookbook from the 30s. That's oh, interesting. It has a red cover. That that there you go. I don't know. It's yeah. Oh, interesting. So tell us a little bit about her.
1: Well, she was there at the same time. She was in the same settlement house as Upton Sinclair. So she was working mm. in in you know in the stockyards in the neighborhoods at the same time he was he was taking notes on the for the jungle. So so she goes back after this experience, which is uh, a formative experience for her. She wants to. Try to create something like this in uh, then Austrian Bohemia. Uh, there's, There are not many options for her. She becomes a school teacher. Uh, she works at uh, Girls uh, Gymnasia, first in a in a town outside of uh, outside of Prague and then in Prague itself. And uh, during the war, so her dad and her youngest sister. Head off to England and then the United States, so that her dad can build up this this movement for an independent Czech state. And Alice is left in Prague with her mother, who by this time is is quite ill. Uh, so she's taking care of her mother. Uh, she's doing social welfare work. She's uh, doing volunteer work. She's teaching. Uh, and then in 1916, she's arrested, uh, be- hmm. owing to her her father's work overseas and she sent, uh, to Vienna. Uh, she spends a number of months in jail. Uh, at one point the news even goes out, uh, in the New York times and American newspapers that she had been executed. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so it was actually quite a, uh, um, how to say, uh, it, it attracted a lot of attention, her arrest and the news of her execution in the United States, given the, the family's connections uh, with, with people in the U.S., uh, but she's, she's ultimately released. And, uh, and during her time in prison, this is when her kind of understanding of her, her future path is really formed, where as she says uh, at one point in the letter to her mother, my life will be an active prayer. What my, my food is, is serving people. And immediate, she doesn't know how she will serve people. She just knows this is, this is the direction I'm going to go. And then after the war, her father becomes president And he appoints her as the director of the Czechoslovak Red Cross. So so Czechoslovakia forms its own Red Cross organization. Uh, She becomes its founding director. Right away, she has to handle uh, the problems with um, disease in post-war Czechoslovakia. Um, she has to handle food distribution, the lack of food. Uh, she goes right away to Paris and to London to meet with other Red Cross organizations, to meet with Herbert Hoover, to figure out ways to bring aid into Czechoslovakia. And, uh, she, she does admirable work in terms of bringing in supplies, bringing in, uh, foreign doctors, bringing in foreign nurses and social workers uh, to, help, um, uh, to help Czechoslovakia get through this, this immediate crisis in terms of health care and, and social welfare. Um, so as director of, of the Czechoslovak Red Cross, she has an understanding, and this, and this connects with her father's vision of, of the moral republic, that the Red Cross is going to be essential to bringing this vision into reality Uh, in that she sees the Red Cross as a way for citizens to volunteer to serve others. She says her hope is that everybody, every citizen of Czechoslovakia will become a volunteer for the Red Cross. And so she really has a sense of the Red Cross as the instrument of her father's moral uh,
0: altruistic
1: democracy, and uh, and this is a vision she holds to through the through the 1920s and 1930s.
0: So we're uh, not quite out of time, but I want to ask a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, and one of them is since we've been talking about these three figures and their ideas, I wonder if you could tell us what happened to them uh, in the following period. Masaryk, what happened to him?
1: Ah, uh, so Masaryk. He serves. Oh, I lose count. He he he's elected, I believe, four times by parliament as president. Uh, the last time he's he's uh, in failing health. He had suffered a stroke, uh, and so he's he after his, his last election, he steps down shortly after that uh, in in 1935 to make way for his chosen successor, uh, Edvard Beneš, who had been his um, Benish, his yeah. foreign minister. Um, and then Masaryk passes away in in 1937, uh, so a year before, mm-hmm. uh, a year before the Munich Agreement. Um, yeah. During the war, Alice Masarykova she ends up in the United States and she does um, she does lectures and uh, gives speeches and so forth and and trying to build support for um, for the. Czechoslovak cause. So, so recall that during the war, one of the big issues that, uh, that Benish, in leading the government in exile had to face is how do we undo the Munich agreement? And so this was, uh, work that the government in exile in London did. And this was work that, uh, people like Masaryk, Masarikova, and her brother, Jan Masaryk were doing in, in both England and the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. after the war, she returns to Prague, uh, and then, of course, in 1948, when the when the communists take over, she goes back to the United States, and she uh, she has really a, a, a rough time of it after her in her second exile. In that she she kind of bounces from from place to place. She she works on uh, editing her father's writings, writing her own memoirs, and so forth. She relies upon the the care and generosity of other. Uh, of other Czech exiles, uh, as well as the, the women she had worked with in uh, the settlement houses when she was first in Chicago. Uh, and then Plechnik uh, resigns as the architect of the castle uh, immediately after Benes uh, takes over as president. Uh, he spends really the rest of his life in, in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Uh, he continues to teach at the university in Ljubljana. He does uh, projects, uh, in the early 1940s until the, the, the Germans, uh, take over Slovenia from the Italians. Uh, and then even after the war, uh, under the communists, he does, um, he does a, a few projects. He did a, uh, a, a project for Tito. Uh, and then, um, by the, you know, by the 1950s, it's clear that, that, Yugoslav and Slovene uh, architecture is moving in a more socialist direction yet he still has he still has fans among uh, the Slovenian guild of architects who you know continue to his respect his work and so forth Um, yeah so that's uh, the direction those those three go Mm
0: -hmm. what happens to Masaryk et alia's Vision of a moral religious republic. Yeah. What is its legacy?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I had mentioned the the Protestant theologian uh, Josef Romadka, uh, who goes to Princeton during the war, and then he returns to Prague after the war. And and during the war, uh, Romadka's good friend, uh, this philosopher Emmanuel Rodel, who I mentioned earlier. Um, he he dies of illness during the during the war. Rottel does, and and after the war, Romodanca writes a biography of his friend, and in the biography, Romodanca kind of vents his understanding of of what re- what went wrong. That even though he he criticized Moserich's theology as bad theology, he still saw um, Maserik as having a admirable and and correct vision for the Czechoslovak state and how Czechoslovakia should uh, should build its its democracy and he really blames the people who surrounded Masaryk that they didn't understand uh, the the religious core in in Masaryk's philosophy so he blames um, liberal writers like Karel Chapek uh, he blames people like he doesn't say this explicitly but but it comes across he blames people like uh, like benish and others who who didn't fully understand that that you couldn't you couldn't have the morality in masserich's philosophy without having the, the religious awareness in, in masserich's philosophy and, and so that's his that's his argument um, others argue that Mosserick's philosophy was moved in the direction of, you know, you brought up the term secular humanism. It moved in the direction of a humanistic uh, understanding of of religion, that it was a religion that would be inspiring, that it would be motivating uh, because it was liberated from the authority of churches, from the, the strictures of catechisms and theology, and that it was... The Catholics, and it was the religious Protestants who got it wrong, and in their <laughs> insistence that that there had to be a return uh, to the church, whichever church you choose, uh, that this was the mistake, and that um, um, Maseric did indeed have the, the noble, correct vision in proposing this uh, uh, as as one person called it um, this this churchless religion. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the that's the debate. You know, it's interesting that it has come back uh, within or Masaryk's notion of this this churchless religion, or you know, really this this idea of not being religious but being spiritual. Uh, it has it has come back, and uh, sociologists, Czech sociologists, who work on. Uh, contemporary Czech religion. They point out that, you know, contrary to what the statistics show in the census data, uh, the Czechs actually are pretty religious. They don't express their religion as a belief in uh, or adherence to any particular church or institution. They don't even profess belief in in any traditional notion of God. Uh, but they do demonstrate religious belief uh, and that does shape their, their sense of the world. And, uh, and you could, and this is, you know, one of the things I play with in the book. Uh, this goes back, Masaryk didn't invent it, but, but Mosserick as president, as an important cultural figure, uh, he plays an important part in this history in first expressing this, um, this religion without, without church, this, even this religion without God.
0: Did Havel ever talk about any of these things?
1: Havel would talk about uh, being, being with a capital B, that this was, and being as eternal as being the measure of our our actions, as being uh, the guide for us. So when you mm-hmm. read especially uh, Havel's late letters to his wife, Olga, from when he was in prison, uh, this is when he he's formulating, he's working through this understanding of the eternal being as um, is what he's looking to in, in setting his moral framework. Uh, there's a there's a, a Czech historian, uh, Czech literary historian, actually, who's who's done an interesting spiritual biography of uh, of Havel and points out Havel was always when he was within the um, within the dissident movement. He did have connections with uh, a number of Catholic and Protestant. Um, thinkers and and philosophers and and was influenced a bit by their ideas. But he never, and he and he would state this explicitly, no, I, I can't I can't state that I believe in in God, in any traditional or creedal sense. I can't turn to uh, the church in any any traditional mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Well, there are a lot of things that we have not had a chance to touch on in this very rich book. And I'm sorry about that, but our time is almost done. So let me ask you, Bruce, our traditional final question on the New Books Network. I don't know about the New Books Network, but it's always my traditional final question. And that is, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so so this book is about architecture. I talk about art in there, um, philosophy, theology, literature. I talk about poetry, Um so I like to say that, that in this book, this last book, I dealt with the the sublime heights of, of human thought and culture. And for the next book, I'm moving in another direction, and, and I'm writing about
0: the history of ice hockey. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is not sublime. I have a lot of experience with according, it. You know, according to some sublime. people, it is quite sublime. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right, fine. Okay, Whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. They've so, obviously,
0: ever watched a hockey game? <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so I'm I'm actually taking off in in January. I'm going to go to Korea to watch the uh, to watch the Winter Olympics, and but also to uh, do some research on on hockey in Korea and East Asia, and then uh, Korea next, to play hockey. Am I going to play hockey? Are Koreans play hockey. Koreans oh, though. Oh, Koreans! Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Koreans God. because they're hosting the games. They have uh, the oh, men's God. and women's teams have Amazing. have automatic bids. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, and then and then I'm going back to Prague to do research because, of course, the Czechs play hockey. We know that. Oh, and yeah. uh, oh, yeah. and then in the Thank summer you. I'll be up in Canada because, of course, you can't write the history of hockey without uh, without going oh, to Canada. Right
0: yeah, yeah, that's so. Good. Yeah. So yeah. So, for, so it's the global history yeah. of. Hockey. Global history of hockey. Well, it sounds very fascinating. I know that um, for those of us in the Northeast here, my son plays hockey and I uh, take him everywhere to play it. And uh, it really is the kind of thing it takes over your life. But we always look upon the uh, Canadians with a certain amount of envy because they kind of have it figured out.
1: Figured out. It.
0: Figured out in what sense? Figured out the sense of being about. Well, they know how to produce good players out of a yeah. small population. They really do. Yes. It's pretty yeah. astounding when you think about it. I mean, they're not very many midi- Canadians. Sorry, Canadians. And it's a big place, but it's not. You know, it's not the United States. But well, uh, a, a big Canadians part of my every single person who can play hockey. Yeah, <laughs> and a, they put them on teams. And a uh, big, a astounding. big part of my book
1: yeah. is to figure out why, why youth hockey has taken over your life. That's, yeah, that's, well, I'll tell that's you what,
0: it really yeah. has. I never played hockey. I grew up in Kansas. I didn't, I can't even skate, but I tell you what, I spend many hours every week, uh, participating in hockey. Mm-hmm. It's a whole deal. It's a thing in my yep. life. So yep. I think you're going to have, you have a, what they call in publishing a huge natural uh, constituency for this book. A natural audience. I hope People so. You like me. <laughs> well, Bruce, it's been great to talk to you. Um, let me tell everybody we've been talking to, Bruce Berglund, about his terrific book Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. Bruce, thanks for being on. Thank you, Marshall, for having me. Absolutely. And let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast that we really appreciate your patronage, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks very much for listening.